0: Thank you for joining the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast with your host, Clayton Craddock.
1: Welcome to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. My name is Clayton Craddock, and this is your one-stop shop for everything you'll need to know about playing drums for Broadway musicals. This is part two of my interview with Matt Vanderend, the drummer for Broadway's Wicked. We start out this episode talking about his experience going out with the first national tour of Wicked. No need for further introduction. Let's just get right back into the conversation.
2: Wicked was just beginning to explode at this point. So Wicked had opened in 2003. Tour opened in February of 2005 in Toronto. Um, the producers, for whatever reason, weren't totally sure how the show was going to do. So the idea was that it was open-ended. The vibe was that the show is a huge hit, so it's probably going to keep touring for years to come. But they weren't sure because we'd only sold tickets through to uh, Toronto starting in February. But by the time the two-month run in Toronto was over, the entire calendar year was sold out. Yeah, the entire year was sold out. So it was actually so sold out, the demand was so high, that by the time we got into Chicago – they wanted to set up a brand new company to sit down in Los Angeles. So they were going to take the sets from the first national tour, leave them in Los Angeles, rebuild an entire tour and then reopen the tour starting in San Francisco after the first two
1: month Los Angeles run. Wow. Yeah, it was about wicked that I didn't really understand. I got to tell you, I told this to uh, somebody else. I've never seen the show (laughs) I <laughs> never heard the music until like two days ago. My girlfriend's like, oh my God, you got to hear this song. And she played it. She started crying. She's like, oh my God, it's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. And this is when she goes up and I was like, okay, okay, I get it. I, I got to see it. And, you know, I've been trying to actually watch you in the pit, but every time I do that, I'm like, I have to either get a gig or something else goes on. And I can never watch you play it. And I've always heard I know how- that's
2: been, it's been, it's <laughs> been funny like that. Like you call me and uh, I remember through our connection through, um, through Memphis and I was like, "This guy would be perfect for this show because he's a metal. He's got a metal background. He's already like a, played on a hard hitting rock show. So, and he's got the Broadway experience. He'd be perfect." I'm like, "Yeah, come in. Let's have you come watch the book, and I'll make some space for you, or we'll figure it out. You know, have you check it out?" And then next thing you know, you're like, "Oh, I got this gig."
1: And yeah, like, yeah, and then I of wanted. Course to, you, yeah. Of course you do. <laughs> <laughs> Which maybe I should just keep calling. He's like, "Hey, man, can I come watch?" <laughs> so anyway, yeah. yeah. The thing is, yeah. I keep hearing how difficult. Wicked is to play. And you did it in a week. I've heard so many stories like, oh my God, it's the most difficult show I've ever done in my entire life. Why is it so difficult? And why do you think it's um, so difficult? It's it,
2: the show itself is difficult. It's a kind of a nonstop start to finish. Um, in- high intensity show. Um, it crosses over in genres of music for a drummer to be able to put on several different hats throughout the show all the time. So you quite literally go from a Stuart Copeland feel to a full-on 80s rock and roll ballad feel to a very aggressive, loud, um, like borderline um, punk feel to being a classical musician and being a a typical, you know, two-beat Broadway musician. And this is happening throughout the show all the time. And the hard part is... It's a very large orchestra by Broadway standards. It's 23 of us. And with a band that large, with the separation that we had in the pit, it was hard to play that show and drive it. They really, I mean, Wayne Salento is the choreographer, and he's very used to the older school style of like a, um, what do you call it? A chorus line style of drumming. And that's kind of the approach that you have. The drummer is, the transmission of that show. Why I felt like it came to me easily is that there's one tune in the middle of that show where you're you quite literally Gary's Gary's explanation of the description of this tune is perfect. It's like Bartok meets Metallica. You are like a Metallica metal drummer in the middle of a symphony orchestra, and there are time changes, there are tritards, there's accelerandos, and on top of this. It's the big moment when the lead of the show is casting her spells. This is uh, you know, a, a tune called No Good Deed. And it is just a brutal drum part. It's something that most drummers do not know and or get or would understand. And me being a metal and a rock and roll drummer and a classical drummer, it came to me like that. I was like, oh, I get this.
0: hurts. Too much, too much to mention. Was I really seeking good or just seeking attention? Is that all good deeds are when looked at with an ice cold eye? If that's all good deeds are.
2: I mean, it just happened to happen. And I, I feel like, and I've been told this a couple of times, Stephen Remus had told me this, Michael Keller had told me this, and Gary had told me this, that I was the perfect fit to take over that book just because of my background and my specific what I do. Um, I know that I'm not the best fit for all Broadway shows. I'm not even close. Like, I can't do what Andreas does. There's just no way. And so I wouldn't work out at, uh, in the heights, you know. And Alex Lacamoire was our music director at Wicked, when I was taking over um, and he was also the piano player like right before that when I subbed there he was the piano player and so there's that kind of level of intensity that was in the pit all the time and he was very instrumental in getting that that book and that feel of how that show should happen together and if Wicked feels like it's the kitchen sink being thrown at you all the time and because it's a show that's organic and it moves and it's got a lot of motion it's not the same show every single night. It, you can listen to two recordings a year apart and it sounds remarkably similar, but when you're inside the show, inside your head, it's different all the time. It's different with what's going on. It's different with what the music director is doing. And that particular show, the music director, that chair isn't as specific as like a symphony orchestra, right? It, that music director is directing everything that's going on on stage. And it's keeping the orchestra together. And most of that pressure falls on the drum book. So when you're keeping the time together and they're worried about cues, they've got cues and stage cues and they're conducting the orchestra at the same time, they don't have time to worry about if the drummer's got his shit together, <laughs> you know? So I think that kind of pressure makes that book and that show particularly hard. It is not an easy thing to do. Um, I've had a lot of drummers come in and watch and play some drummers. It fits well with them. And some drummers, they think they can do it. I've had a couple of crash and burns, nothing really bad, but a couple early on where I, I'd, I'd learned I need to vet my, my subs more often. And sometimes it's an undue amount of pressure that could be on somebody. So I feel like if they don't have a significant amount of Broadway pressure, I don't want to put them through that. Do you know what I mean? Cause so, it's a particularly large show.
1: How did you actually get the show? You you were working with Gary. Oh, the Broadway yes. company? Yes. You came, you did, um, the, you did the tour for a year. Then, yeah. then what happened?
2: Um, I was on tour, and Gary was going to leave to go do Tarzan. He was going to work with um, Phil Collins and originate the book for Tarzan. So he had put in his notice at Wicked, but he was still, I think, doing about a year. I mean, I'm sorry. He was still doing about a month left, and they had decided to choose his replacement out of the subs that were already on the Broadway book. I threw my hat in the ring. You know, I'd said to, I knew that Bob Billig who was our music director on the wicked tour. The first year I went out was going to leave the tour and take over on Broadway. Did that have some influence on it? It might have. There are a lot of music directors that take drummers show to show to show to show. So it probably would have made him a lot more comfortable knowing that I was going to go with him, but he also knew that, Alex and Stephen Arimus were choosing a drummer to replace Gary based upon the subs that were in New York. And <clears throat> they're all really fine drummers. I think they just weren't finding the right fit to take over the chair. Um, it's one thing to sub. It's another thing to actually own the chair. Your personality is kind of a big part of that as well and how you, you know, interact with the orchestra and so forth. And I had had a whole year's experience on the road, I'd open up the first national tour. So I was well used to the kind of pressure that was coming to that particular player on that book. And I think Bob going over to New York might have been an influence. I'm not totally sure, but at one point we were playing down at the, um, Kennedy center in Washington, DC. And a Remus had come down to watch me play. I didn't really know this, but I was, told Lay that he came down because he was like, we're not quite finding who we want, but I'm going to go check out the first national drummer because he didn't know me. Um, by the time I had subbed there, he was only conducting a few more times. You know, this is like right around the time when Kristen and Adina were still in the show, but they were leaving and he was already on to doing different stuff. So Alex's, you know, other music directors had heard me play, but not so much Arimus and Arimus didn't come out to set up the show uh, on the road, he had left that up to Bob, who was the music director and Michael Keller was around a lot. So there were some influences like, you know, Keller and Gary and Bob saying, you know, come listen to Mac, come check him out. You might find your fit there. And apparently he did come listen to me. And apparently I believe that's when they made their decision is that when he saw me play at the, at the, um, at the Kennedy center there, did I say Lincoln center or Kennedy center, whatever it was. Um, Yeah, thank you. <laughs> he, when he'd seen me play there, which is a similar size theater to that of the Gershwin, I think he was like, okay, that's our guy. And it was shortly after that that Keller had called me and said that Aremus wants you to come take over the book. And I was like, wow. I felt like it felt a little bit like it was coming out of the blue because I really didn't have any idea that they were seriously considering me. I think it happened pretty quickly. I'm not completely sure how it happened, but I know that that's some sort of chain of events in that in that what have you. I think it was the performances there at the Kennedy Center that, that it kind of uh, sealed the deal, so to speak.
1: So you got the job as the drummer for the hit Broadway musical Wicked. Right. How did you feel after that? Did you like, oh my God, I I got to the top of my profession. Like what was going through your mind? Mm -hmm. And when did everything kind of start to settle in after that?
2: Um. Yeah, that is how I felt about um, my Broadway career that like, okay, this is the pinnacle. I'm not going to get a better drum book or a better show than this. I mean, I really felt that I I really loved the show. I felt like this is one of the few Broadway shows that um, I was really excited about playing every single night. All Broadway shows are fun. This one in particular was like something I totally fell in love with and taking out the first national tour. I never got bored a single night. I mean, I never, I was never even tired going on, you know, I loved playing that book. So taking over on Broadway, it was, it, it was hard replacing Gary on a couple different levels on a personality level. He was the in-house contractor and a very charismatic guy and the band really loved him. So it was hard replacing him on that level because I'm the outsider guy who a lot of them don't remember when I subbed there. Cause it was a year ago. And a lot of them had never really met me because I'd only moved into the city two years ago or two and a half years before, or whatever it was. And there's a little bit of hazing in like, you know, who is this guy? Because, you know, they all had their friends that they wanted to get the job and none of them got the job. They gave it to the outsider and, and an outsider from California on top of that. Hmm. <laughs> and then, and uh, I had to, I was, so, you know, I guess the sense was, well, it's the same show. It should feel the same, but it doesn't. It was quite literally like tra- like taking the transmission out of a car and putting in a new one and grinding the gears a bunch of times, trying to get used to it. You know, My sense of feel, my sense of time, my sense of how I put things and where I move the band or don't move the band was entirely different than Gary. I mean, they felt that I was the closest to representing him on that, on that book uh, so they they liked my energy level and I'm an easy person to get along with. So that part of it worked out for me pretty quickly, but getting to like where my feel was and getting the band used to how I play the show, even though it was the same notes, was enough to rub a bunch of people the wrong way for a little while. <laughs> and it takes time to break in. And it was, I had to learn how to, diplomatically be a person that is going to make them feel that I was the right choice but then give them enough con- conviction in my playing that that I am their right choice and that even though this may not feel right right now totally you're going to get used to it and appreciate it I mean there's a certain level of, of conviction you have to dig in and I had to learn that within the first couple of months because I was a little overwhelmed at first. I didn't quite know how to take where this is all coming from. And I remember speaking to uh I, yeah, I spoke to Dave Radichek about it. I spoke to Larry Lelly about it. And who else did I speak to? I might have spoke to Gary a little bit about it too, just about, you know, how do you approach this and make this work and you know deliver yourself as a person. And literally quite literally convince them that this is the best choice that they possibly could have made, you know, with some people it's like, Oh yeah, he's perfect. But other people, it could be a little bit wonky at, at first. And because I knew the show so intimately from being on the road with it for a year, it was like taking a square peg and putting it into another round hole. And so shaving off all those edges to get it all to fit and to work out. Once it did work out, then I was getting compliments from like the lead trumpet, different heads of the orchestra saying like, you know, your playing's really great, and we're really glad to have you here. and And it was a little bit rocky at first, but you know, now it's like as good as we ever could possibly have imagined it. it there were very nice compliments, but it takes a minute when you replace the drummer. It's I can't explain it any other than just like putting in a whole new transmission and engine into a car, and it's just going to perform differently. Whether it's better or worse, it's just different.
1: You know and what I mean? Did you um, keep? all the subs that were there before I did
2: it first. Yeah, I did. Okay. Um, yeah, I kept all of the subs and then not too many of them have changed to over the years. Some have, have gone and come back and, and so forth, but I've brought in a couple of others that were on my own. Um, but the ones that I inherited were, uh, like Keith Krupe, Bill Lanham, Eric Poland. Um, I think there's a couple others, but they've all, they've less, and I can't remember who they were, but you know, any
1: anyway, rate. Yeah. Wow. And that was 2006. That was 2006 when I took over. Yeah. And you've been doing it ever since. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now, do you ever, I asked this to Bill Lanham, do you ever get, uh, bored or like, man, I can't believe I've been doing this for 15 years. You know, I don't, I don't feel like, well, you don't really feel like not doing it anymore, I guess. But yeah. how, how do you keep things fresh? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I've had
2: shows where I'm really tired and for whatever reason, what's going on around my life has made it exhausting for me that day. And I go in to play the show and I'm not inspired or something. Um, Some shows I have sat down and just turned everything off and tried to fall in love with the drums all over again. And then from the top of the show, really focus and enjoy every single hit that I played of the drums enjoy the sound of that tom enjoy the sound of the kick drum enjoy the sound of your cymbals and it could help take my mind off of playing the same repetitive thing over and over and over again it it could help separate like I love listening to this that night and loved listening to this that night and that's just like band-aid stuff really to keep it fresh I try to practice different styles and change it up in my practice room or do some other gigs to do something different and fresh so that it takes me away from it. So that when I come back to the show, it feels really good, you know, and the percussionist, Andy Jones, had told me one time, if you ever feel stale about the show, go out into the breezeway where the Gershwin is and sit there for a few minutes, right around half an hour, as people are starting to pile into the theater, see this young girls and young guys or teenagers going on first date or, you know, older couples or what have you theater goers and they're enjoying it. And they're excited to see the show, you know, little girls dressed up in a witch outfit or what have you. And it, it does definitely like, wow, people really love the show. They're experiencing something for the first time in their lives. And, you know, that's part of my job is to deliver a great experience to them and the show and everything around it is so much bigger than what I feel about it that night musically. You know, I mean, I feel like that, I earn my place there, but that I'm also really lucky and really blessed to even be there and playing, you know, making a living as a musician. It seems it seems so crazy sometimes, <laughs> you know, and uh, with everything that's going on at the end of each night. Uh, I don't remember too many performances where I wasn't happy. I was always pretty happy. I never, never disliked being there. There were times where I was tired. There were times where I was sick. And there were times where I was dealing with some vertigo, you know, probably about a year before the pandemic hit. And I was really more worried about anything else. I went through tendonitis on the show. I went through a hip problem on the show, um, a couple of knee problems, and the hand tendonitis problems. But I ended up working through them. And it just helped shape me more as a player and really kind of appreciate the music and playing drums and being a musician and like how – fortunate. I feel like that I could do this for an actual living, you know?
1: Interesting. You have a lot of, the the injuries come from playing the show and, and have you figured out a way around, uh, getting more injuries?
2: Yeah. The first ones were, well, when I got into the show, there's a very finite amount of space and Gary's a, a smaller person. Like I have a longer reach than him and my legs are longer. So the kit felt really tight and I tried moving it out as much as I could, but through those baffling walls that could not move because on the other side of these walls were other musicians. So I was in a cockeyed position. And at first I guess it thought it wasn't going to be a big deal. But then once I started having an injury problem, I started seeing a doctor about kinesiology and trying to, you know, to redistribute a flow of blood into my tendons because that's, you know, my muscles were really tight. And so I had to go back. I took, um, I took a couple lessons on the molar technique from um, Danny Gottlieb. And cause he was a big uh, student of, um, you know, uh, what's his name out in Jersey, the famous one. Um, anyway, he had helped me with my grip and I tried approaching things a little bit differently. And I was really focusing on my uh, on my posture and focusing on how I was playing the drums. And I also realized that this hitting the drums the same way every single night was part of the problem. So I started mixing it up. Like I'd, I'd lead a fill with my left hand one night or I'd lead a fill with my right hand another night. It really forced me to think hard. And it forced me my muscles to play different things because I wasn't doing enough outside work where I was playing and doing stuff, different stuff that the repetitive stress of the same thing over and over again was part of what was contributing to the, the injury that I was getting. And the stress overall was a big part of it. So like lowering my stress and changing my diet to more of an anti inflammatory inflammatory diet was just a bit of it, but really working on my, my grip and relaxing and just changing it up and doing different stuff. And then seeing this doctor that would help with like kind of some blood flow or what have you. It took, man, I think six or eight months of like this up and down kind of process, like good nights and bad nights um, before I was able to get over it. And the doctor that I went to helped cause I was overwhelmed. I was like, is my career over? And he had helped me believe in myself that we're going to work through this. You're going to continue to work through this and continue to play you're going to have nights where you're in a lot of pain. You're going to have nights where you're going to feel good about it. And I was doing a lot of icing at the end of the show. this like ice therapy and stuff. All of it helped, but the biggest part of it was just trying to become a drummer again and do different stuff. And like, you know, part of it was like playing a fill a little differently every night. You know, sometimes I, I, blow it a little bit. People give me a bad look. And I'm just like, yeah, this is part of my therapy, dude. You have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: So did you, uh, you know, do, doing something different, did you go back into your like woodshed and then listen to some prong? Or yeah. Play some different I music. <laughs> I remember, I got to tell you a story about that, that time period. When I was, I graduated from uh from college and I was working at record stores uh-huh. and it was like the late 80s, early 90s, and I remember listening to a lot of heavy stuff, and then one of the guys who we used to work at the record store made me a tape called Soothing Tunes of Doom. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I still have it to this day. It had like you know, Exodus Prong. I can't remember some of the other bands. I should just look at the, the list, but it had all kinds of and and Soundgarden. And I just remember going to see Soundgarden in 1989 and just loving the long hair and, and the, the, yeah. the, 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 different thing, the different vibe about them. Plus, they were, they were a groove-oriented band. By the way, yeah. after you know, Soundgarden and Nirvana came out, you were still in, in defiance. Did you see right. a change in the music back then? You were like, oh, my God, this is what we should do? Or do you like, man, screw these guys. We need to just keep doing what we're doing. So yeah it's going i feel like wicked back to defiance but that's
2: yeah it's interesting we yeah it's funny it's funny you bring this up i was going to mention it earlier but then i kind of skipped over it um when we were on tour we played up in seattle and we saw the writing on the wall you know that scene was exploding to a point where um everybody was already talking about it. our lead singer was uh was buying uh allison change records and Soundgarden and um never mind it just come out and i was like Oh boy. I mean like record sales in our genre of music fell off a cliff and quite literally the record industry ran up there to start signing all these bands. And I liked them. You know, we weren't going to change our style of music to go do that. Cause that would have been clearly a sellout just to try to sell records. But our days were numbered. If you know what I mean? I mean, by the time defiance was going to go do a fourth record, the Seattle scene and those bands exploded so much that we, that our record label didn't pick up the next option. So we were without a label and I was like, Oh, well, you know, (laughs) this is probably the end, (laughs) Mm. but we were not going to try to become the next Nirvana or the next sound garden, but we all loved those bands. We all loved that sound. Um, We had splintered off into different bands that did stuff similar to that, but defiance in itself didn't pursue going in that direction. I'm getting back together with my thrash metal band to go play a festival in Milwaukee in October. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't like actively listen to that stuff anymore. It's still really challenging to play. Um, when I sit down and practice and want to play along to a a record, you know, um, Steely Dan's Asia, I try to wish that I could play like those guys. (laughs) you know, but I try to do stuff like that. And there's a a friend of mine had sent me a really cool Jeff Beccaro book of like all his best tracks. And I pulled them up on YouTube and I read along in the music and I try to play like Jeff Beccaro, you know, which I'll never achieve. But uh, meaning that some of those records where it's just about feel and the musical choices in the band, that's what I listen to and play along to Um, the metal stuff. No, I don't, Play along to that stuff anymore. I when the band was deciding to get back together to this festival, um, our lead singer went on to, to form a band called Skin Lab that's done pretty well. And you know, I, I told him I said, I said, I can't play like the metal guys these days. They play this incredibly intricate fast double kick stuff so and blast fast. beats that I know. It's so insane. And I'm like, I just don't play like that. So I'll come back and play with Defiance, but I'm going to play Defiance the way I played Defiance, the way I recorded those records. I'm not going to be this, you know, new-aged metal drummer. I'm still going to be me. And they were, of course, like, yeah, of course, that's what we're doing is, you know, it's this resurgence of the Bay Area metal band, so that's what we want. And I was like, okay. And as I was relearning the tunes, I was like, wow. It's like getting ready to run a marathon.
1: <laughs> <laughs> can you still play what you played back in 1992? I can. There is a couple
2: yeah right 89 90 yeah there's there's a couple of songs luckily we're not playing them um that i can't i can't i can't play like i was listening to it and i was like i have no idea what i was doing there's some kind of double kick thing going on with the tom thing and i was like i think i re- I, I well i'm just glad i'm not doing this tune <laughs> 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 you know and then the other day the singer was like let's play this tune it's called steamroller I had learned this technique from one of the fusion drummers. So it's a, it might've been Dennis Chambers, right? So it's two hi-hats and every time you play the hi-hat, you follow it with a kick drum and then you break it up with the snare drum. So it's like any kind of soloing between kick drum, hi-hats and the snare drum, right? Right. So I came up with this part with this tune and it was arguably the hardest thing I've ever written or played. And now they want to do that too. And so I was at this my studio the other day and I was like, okay, well, what was this? I was like, I remember this. And I'm playing it and then I played the album and I was like, I can't play that fast anymore. Like I can't just can't do it. And I wrote them a text. I was like, Are you guys cool if it's a little slower?
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah. that's funny. Did you obviously you probably used a double bass drum setup and not a double bass pedal? Oh, actually.
2: I was always a double pedal person. I never really? went with double kick drums. Yeah. It was one of the things I used to get criticized for the first early days of, of, of playing in my metal band, but people got into it after a while. They are like, Oh, this is the one and only thrash metal drummer that plays with the double pedal. Mm. <laughs> so I'd always play with the double pedal. And I had, because I still wanted to play like a, you know, Vinny Caluta and, and Dave Weckl, which were doing double pedal, but they had a single kick.
1: Which I hear, I guess it's true, that Vinny Cagliuta Cali- Vinny played on a lot, I think, or most of the uh, Megadeth records.
2: Yeah, I've, I remember trying to cross-reference that and it does it, not surprise me at all. I mean, that guy's a ridiculous, like different level type of player. I mean, it's amazing that he can play on a record like that and make it sound just like them. Just like any other state of the art metal drummer, like a Josh Freese or you name it. I mean, he just is totally incredible. I mean,
1: then he he plays with Herbie Hancock, and I'm like, damn, this dude. And then, or you see him playing with Shaka Khan, it's like he's laying it down. And then, for example, I'm like, oh my God, he's easily top like five drummers, most versatile drummers ever, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. I don't, I, I'm, I can, I'm scratching
2: my head. I don't know of another player in the world that is as versatile as him. Maybe the cat from what was that dude's name that did the uh, snarky puppy records. Um, uh,
1: what is his name? Killer drummer. Um, I, it was Sput? I think it's, I, I can't remember their names. There's like a couple of them.
2: Yeah. It's, um, anyway, he, um, I've seen him do a few different things and he's does he's, He's done this thing on YouTube where he hears a song one time. Yes, and then that he guy. Play it yeah. back.
1: I forgot his name. Yeah, that dude. <laughs> and he's, he's great. He did Enter he did, oh uh, Sandman. That's exactly it. That's, <laughs> I was just thinking of that exact one.
2: Someone sent it to me, and I was like, oh, this shouldn't be that hard. I know that, too. And I mean, my God, I love that black record, right? So they're playing it, and he's like, I have never heard this song.
1: I, like, saw, I, I saw him do, say that. I was but, like, I "Can't believe you never heard that
2: yeah, song before." I know. But he, when he played it back, man, that guy played it with some unbelievable conviction. Yes, and I mean, like, in the pocket, mellow drummer, just badass. Yeah, I was like, I, I don't think I could do that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like Matt. Here's a snarky puppy song. I want you oh, to hear yeah, about it once. <laughs> Yeah, don't forget I'd be about like, it. no, I'm out, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that stuff too, man. I love, I love their stuff. I know, me too. But anyway, we're getting off topic here. I, I want to ask you yeah, a question yeah. as far as, you know, Broadway. You know, what advice would you give someone who's interested in playing Broadway shows? If a, if a drummer says, you know, I want to play Broadway musicals, what do I need to do, Matt?
2: Yeah, um, I would, you know... A lot of things have changed in the last decade, how you approach music, how you break into a music scene. And so I don't want to feel like I'm outdated or, or, or old school, but I still think that music, unlike the internet, is something that takes a lot of time and a lot of hours, a lot of conviction and a lot of love to make wherever you want to go, make it happen for you. And so with that said, um, I think being a Broadway drummer, where you want to sub you want to eventually own your own chair and you want to be able to make a career out of it. Hopefully a long one, um, start at the community level, start at the regional level, even go play high school shows, get a lot of experience, learn all the different styles that are involved in the Broadway show and play every single gig you possibly can join bands that are going to give you the vast amount of playing experience. And because on a Broadway show, if there's a specific aspect of your playing that's, that's, that's weak or not well-developed, it's really going to come out on the show. You know what I mean? And I think starting at a point where you can develop an experience, like going into a Broadway drummer, to me, is just like joining a band. If you want to be a rock and roll drummer you're going to join bands and you're going to start with bands. You're going to keep playing with bands. And hopefully one day that you're going to end up touring the world on arenas and making a bunch of money and making a bunch of records, but you're going to start at the very bottom level with a garage band. Same thing with a Broadway show. You should start playing in very simple shows that give you the playing experience and the amount of, uh, um, you just playing experience to develop yourself, to get ready to go and play on a Broadway show because a Broadway show is, is the professional level where Sometimes people break right in and they have no background experience. Maybe they just came from school, but they're going to, I mean, it might be just a specific show, but if you really want to make a career out of it and work all the different types of shows that there are, because there's a ton, rock and roll shows, R&B, Latin, uh, traditional, classical, you name it. If you want to be able to work that, that vast variety of shows and make a career out of it, I think you need to start with just developing the, the repertoire, you know, essentially like getting ready to play in the symphony orchestra. You learn all the repertoire to get ready to play. You learn all the Broadway type of repertoire to get ready to play and do shows and try to get yourself called on, on stuff to get you prepared and ready to go and off Broadway shows and off off Broadway shows. You know, the more experience you get, the easier it's going to be. And the more serious people are going to take you when you start breaking into the Broadway
1: scene, you know? What are some things that a drummer in a Broadway show should never do? I mean, as a sub or as a regular? Because I think there's two different worlds. <laughs> All right, yeah, there are, there are. Okay, let's start with, by being a sub. What is something that a drummer that is subbing on a Broadway show, what are the things that they should never do?
2: When you walk in to play the show, play the show that's exactly like the regular drummer. What you should never do is walk in there and play the show like you're trying to impress the music director and you do your own thing, like some fancy fill, some fancy, whatever, because all it's going to do is piss off everybody. Um, Playing wise. I think that's probably the fundamentals of being a sub is that your job is to sound exactly like the regular player. And that's how you get noticed and break in. But if you go in there and you are eager to show off your own skills and like, this is who I am, I, it never works out. So that's a never, never do. Um, Never go in there and piss off the people. Don't, you know, be easy to get along with and be accommodating to the point where you're just, you know, people look forward to talking to you and hanging out with you. You know, if you're, if you're somebody that rubs people the wrong way and you're abrasive on a Broadway show, it, the music director may like you a lot, but the regular player is probably going to hear from other people that they were difficult to be around, and then they won't call
1: you back. So the same question, but someone who has the the drum chair, I guess. It, you know, maybe it's different because you know you've had the drum chair for so long. Maybe, right? Do you have an, a, any advice of things that you feel that you should never do yourself? Um.
2: Yeah, you shouldn't um, Broadway is a big business. You know, the, the companies and the producers and the shows, they they make a lot of money. So it's really not about you. It's about being a member of of the orchestra and a part of the product. And so what you shouldn't do is try to make it about you, you know, tell people that like, you know, you don't actually want to be there. This is beneath you. This is whatever that is. Um, being there and a part of a Broadway show is being a part of a kind of like being a part of a family. You know, you could imagine if you're a member of a family that no one wants to be around. That's just going to make your life miserable. Imagine if you're on a show for 20 years, 10 years, 15 years, and no one gets along with you. Do you know what I mean? I mean, it could be just a nightmare. But getting along on personalities when you're sitting on a show, because you've already been hired for your playing ability. So how you connect and your chemistry with the, of the other players is, is critical. So what
1: not to do is be a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> All right. On the flip side, as a sub drummer on Broadway, what should you always do? Um,
2: I've heard this from music directors. I heard it when I was a sub and I've heard it while I'm a regular player that when you are a sub, you should come in and check in with the music director early enough, and the contractor to let those two people know on a professional level that you're there early, that you care, and that this is important to you. Um, If they know those three things, just because you checked in, you say, hey, I'm here. I want to let you know. They may not barely acknowledge you. Like, oh, thank you for letting me know. But trust me, it sits. I've had a music director tell me like, you know, such and such showed up only a few minutes before the show started. And I didn't appreciate that. That person had been there many, many times. It was one time. And for some reason, that particular sub didn't check in with the music director. So it does matter. And with that said, when a music director knows that you're there and that you care and that you're studious, when they come up to the podium and they start getting ready to start the show, they're going to feel confident that you're there. So that's something you should always do is, is, you know, A, 90% 95% of that gig that night is you being there on time, (laughs) you know, no matter what being late is not an option. So be there plenty early Let people know music director, the contractor that you're there and everything will be good. That's probably the best advice I have, you know, and you know, playing, playing is a a given you got to kick ass, but
1: you know what I mean? So, I see that you have a t-shirt, which is a, a diagram of the Ludwig speed King. Yeah. <laughs> bass drum pedal. One of the greatest yeah. bass drum pedals to come out. You know, a lot of people used it back in the, I sixties and seventies. And I, I had one for a long time, but I'm, I'm yeah, curious too. To what kind of gear do you use right now on wicked? Did you bring in your drum set by the way? Um, I have my drum set
2: over there. I didn't at first. There's a, um, the kit, The drums that I'm using are, uh, D'Amico drums made by a guy named Gene D'Amico. Um, he's based out of Massachusetts and they're it's a custom kit like Keller shells and beautiful paint job, uh, beautiful drums. I had, I'm using like a a 10 a 12 and a 15 inch floor Tom. Uh, the snare drums are either D'Amico or I have a, uh, what do you call it? Um, a DW, um, Lake Superior drum. Sometimes I swap out, but D'Amico drums. And then it's like, some Pearl hardware and a rack that belongs to the show. The cymbals are all Sabian that I use and uh, the sticks are all Vader percussion sticks. The heads are, are Evans. And um, yeah, that's a, that's about it. So, so cymbal sticks, heads and drums are all either D'Amico, Evans, Vader, Sabian, and hardware is like Pearl.
1: That kind Do you of have them. endorsements with, with all of these companies?
2: Not all of them. I have a uh, Sabian, D'Amico, Vader. Um, yeah, those are, the f- those are the three main ones.
1: Did you get these endorsements by working on the show, or was it before? How did it all work out?
2: Uh, D'Amico, I used to have a Zildjian endorsement when I was with Defiance, my band. And um, D'Amico, I picked up while I was with my band. Um, so D'Amico and Zildjian, I had for a while. Zildjian dropped me eventually. That just kind of fell off the roster. And then I picked up um vader percussion and sabian
1: when i got wicked were they looking for you or did you look for them how did how the relationship uh come to be
2: i went looking for them um i was now playing full time and you end up spending a lot of money if you're buying sticks head symbols at retail So I was not necessarily looking for someone who's going to promote me as like the wicked drummer and, you know, do seminars and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm going to do TV cameras and lots of spots. I knew that I wasn't that kind of drummer for them. What I wanted was support for professional musician. And, you know, I will support you. You'll support me. And what I need is just a break in the cost because I know that they don't that this at this stage of the game, they were not giving free stuff away or unless you were like. The drummer for the food Fighters, you know what I mean. Um, so Sabian cymbals, because cymbals crack and they break and they become very specific. And I really wanted access to the best product for that particular show, and I was willing to pay for them, but I couldn't pay six hundred dollars for a crash cymbal because I loved, you know, an artisan series or something. So I was um, I was introduced to Andy Zildjian that runs Sabian, and uh, I've subsequently become you know, good friends with him and have hung out with him a bunch of times. And he um, was very helpful in helping me choose symbols and get set up at Wicked. Um, He was looking to expand Sabian's market share in New York City for endorsees for the Broadway scene. Um, I don't think any of us get stuff free. I mean, maybe some of us do, but I don't. Um, So I always pay at cost for my symbols and replacements. Um, but Andy had come by the show and had listened and was like, you should choose this. You should choose that. And I was like, I'm looking for this sound. He knew exactly what it was. I mean, that was like a great relationship that I established because he's hands on with every single symbol design at Sabian that comes out. And, you know, each time a new product comes out, I was like, so what do you think of this? And he was like, it's, it's this, it's, it's got this kind of color. It's got this kind of you know crash and the way the symbol spreads. And I'm like, you think it would work for this and that? And he's like, uh, I'm not so sure for this one. But, you know, he had turned me on to this um, hand-hammered raw bell dry ride that I used at the show from Sabian for my ride symbol. And when I put that thing up, it had enough stick to it that everybody – because I'm behind a booth and an elevator shaft, and people across the other side of the pit could hear the stick and feel it. And then when I'd lay into the bell, they could really hear it. And it worked because I'm – from the rock and roll world, which is a bottom up type of player, kick, snare, you know, but a lot of the people on the other side of the pit are jazz players, which is kind of the symbol top down type of tech. You know what I'm saying? So when I was trying to figure out how can they hear the time on the hi-hat and on the ride cymbal, which is what they're listening to, because they're not they're not used to hearing like boom. Ga, ooh ga. I mean, they hear it, but they're they're listening to dang, dang, bang, dang, go back at the end gang. That's more of what they're they're putting their thing on. And a few of these symbols from Sabian were just like cutting through all of that. And it was like working perfectly. And Andy knew exactly what would cut through for them to be able to hear all that. It was, it was really pretty cool.
1: It's very interesting. And I, I, I need to probably rethink that. There's there's some, (laughs) some stuff that I do in the show that, you know, especially uh, when there's just the, like a, a situation where I'm playing for a long period of time or I'm playing something that's just me playing and I'm supporting the dancers. I got to, I got to rethink some of the sounds that I'm using, but I, I mean, I like what I'm using now, but uh, it's always good to be exposed to new sounds and, and, and different series from different symbol manufacturers. So.
2: Oh, definitely. I mean, a huge, a huge proponent of Sabian symbols, somebody that, it's always trying out different stuff in their catalog is Larry Lelly, And he's got a huge wealth of knowledge on like what works
1: here and what works there. Outside of defiance. Is there anything that you're working on at the moment musically?
2: Oh, musically. Um, yeah, there's a guy that, uh, when I first moved to the city, he ended up marrying this woman, the woman I was marri- that I was, you know, roommates with, but he ended up becoming one of the phantom understudies at the show phantom in the city. And so he started his own show and uh, it's called Jeremy Stoll's uh, no, More Talk, no More Talk of Darkness. And the band is like the Unreachable Stars band. It's basically a Broadway review type of show that he does. And we've toured China two times and we just went and played a week out in Wichita, at a major theater company um, at an outdoor amphitheater. And we're going to play at Birdland coming up in September, one of the last weekends or something like that. And that's, that's a lot of fun. There's some really good players on that gig. Um, it's just three musicians and then it's him and the other singers. And then we do play to some backing tracks because, you know, filling out an entire orchestra of that size is <laughs> quite expensive when you're at the starting phases of it, but it's really a lot of fun. Um, there's that, um, I'm doing my defiance
1: thing again. And, um, So are you playing in New York? Is defiance playing in New York? Cause I will be in the mosh pit. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if
2: they are. We might end up out here in New York, which would be killer, man. I would have all the Broadway goons that I know come and check <laughs> out that one. Um, the other thing that I'm doing right now is a guy that I've been working with on and off for about a decade. Um, it's bar band stuff. It's He's a great guitar player, but he's also a stageant. Um His name's Tommy Grosso, and he does his own band. And I've been playing down on the Jersey Shore all summer long. Um, I have a gig with him. Next Wednesday out in Jersey, it's an 80s band kind of thing. And uh, that's been a lot of fun. You know, I, I was doing some online teaching for lessons and a few recordings um, up until January. And then my wife and I, she is originally from Bangkok. We were able to get out of the country and go visit her family for a while. So because she had been laid off for the pandemic as well as i had been laid off. So we had a bunch of time. And I wanted to get out of here for you know, 10 months of this thing. I was like, I'm done. So <laughs> we went out there and I played a lot out there. I played in a lot of bars. and I taught two seminars at a university while I was out there, uh, which is something that really intrigued me. Um, I didn't know how I was going to like teaching on a seminar level. And I actually really like it. It was a lot of fun. I did. I taught them, but I played some experts from excerpts from wicked similar to that the conversation that we're having here you know about being a freelance drummer a well-versed drummer a drummer that's going to work in theater that well works at bars and plays at you know uh you know high-level gigs or studio sessions or, or whatever so that's kind of what that's what i've been up to for like this year <laughs>
1: <laughs> if people want to find you online where can they find you at mattvanderin.com. that's my website and, and um, how do you spell uh your last name for those who my, don't know
2: Uh, Well, it's
1: Matt, M-A-2-T's,
2: M-A-T-T, Vanderen, V-A-N-D-E-R-E-N-D-E dot com. And I have all my updates I put up like where I'm playing or what's coming up next or what have you. So it'll be up there, including this interview when it's done.
1: (laughs) I think it was like 1992. Before I moved to New York City, another kind of metal thing that we can connect on. I went to see this band called Twenty Four Seven Spies at the Nine Thirty Club in D.C.
2: Oh oh, (laughs) man, I played that club. That what? Okay, go ahead. It was such a
1: great club. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, I just remember saying, you know, I was young, and uh, I thought I'd try it. They had a mosh pit. I don't know if you've ever been in a mosh pit before. You know, you probably started too many times. (laughs) But I went in. I was like, okay going in, I'm going in. I went in. You know, they're throwing fists and elbows and, man, I got oh, elbowed man. in my chest. I was like, time out. Time out again. <laughs> that was the last time I went. Um, I saw Fishbone last summer at I guess Sony oh, called right across the, the street from Ain't Too Proud. and I got yeah. in the front row and I forgot where I was. You know, I was so captivated with them, and it's like fucking fishbone. Yeah. And then and I, I went right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I was in the front, and I was pinned against the the stage. You're like, oh shit! I have flashbacks of 1992. I was like, okay, I'm going in the <laughs> back. I'm an old man now. I'm not trying to get my brittle bones smashed.
2: <laughs> oh my god! But
1: did you ever get into I, a, a mosh pit?
2: Yeah, I tried. So there's so much energy and uh and anger in a mosh pit me as a skinny white kid 19 20 years old i remember kind of getting into this thing and going around it and getting hit three or four times between like the chin and the shoulder and i just was like i I can't handle it i mean the the people there are like thugs (laughs) straight up street fighting thugs you know it's like
1: (laughs) Yeah. And they're all big and they're like,
2: Oh my God. They're all big and buffed and tatted out and, you know, skinheads or whatever. And and, and, and I I mean, I tried it a couple of times, but you gotta be a certain kind of person to handle that. You know, we had a, we had a manager that was handling the early stuff for defiance. It was a friend of ours. He's completely crazy. His name was ace. So he would literally run up on the stage and do a stage dive down into the mosh pit. You know, and then he would like you. would see the hands and the fists thrown along, and there was always blood down in those in those pits. Someone getting a tooth knocked out, a nose broken, or something. You know, and at the nine thirty club in Washington D.C., man, that place was. We played there a couple times with Defiance on tour, and that place would just explode like, boom, the pit everywhere. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm sure you played CBGBs back in the day. Oh no,
2: we we didn't play CBGBs. That that. We didn't play that club when we came through New York. We played some other place. Um, I can't remember the name of it. It was over on the west side of town. It wasn't on the east side. Um, I wish I had played CBGBs. The, the equivalent of CBGBs out in the Bay Area in Berkeley was a place called Blondie's. And, um, or Ruthie's Inn. I'm sorry. Blondie's was in Detroit. Um, Ruthie's Inn was the same kind of thing as CBGBs and same kind of like really whacked out, down in the gutter rock club that was like a punk club, that was kind of the birth of the, of the Berkeley punk scene and like black flag would play there. Metallica but, played there. There was
1: another, <clears throat> another place that I went to when we were, when ain't too proud was out in Berkeley in 2017, there was a club in Berkeley. That was Gilman one of the street. Yes, that was it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I walked in. I was like, Oh shit, this is like some legendary <clears throat> place. Did you ever it play is, there? That's or where it? that's not really, that wasn't um, you. I,
2: well, I played there when it was, Before it was the um, Green Day, like legendary birth of Green Day and those other bands. Um, I played there with a funk band one night. We also used to play a place called the Berkeley Square, uh, which was another club like that that had a lot of different bands. But Gilman Street was legendary for that scene. Um, I think Defiance played there. I can't completely remember. When Defiance was playing a lot, we played The Stone in San Francisco, which is no longer around. And we played Ruthie's Inn, which is in Berkeley, which is no longer around. Um, played the whiskey in I think LA? Not, we did play the whiskey. We played Gazzari's and the whiskey in LA. Gazzari's.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't think i, know, I right? the club. I, I, <laughs> I wish I had gone. I guess the whiskey is still around. I hope it's still open.
2: I, I think it is. I mean, a lot of these clubs are tragically closing across the United States everywhere. You know, um, uh, there's only a few of them left. And It's sad, you know, CBGB's is gone, Blondie's is gone, Uh, Ruthie's is gone, The Stone is gone, a couple of those clubs in LA are gone, and these are the birthplaces of the early, I mean, Elton John played the Whiskey A Go-Go and Gazzaris in these places, you know, in in Los Angeles, and then The Stone was where Metallica got their start. You know, CBGB's is with the birth of all of New York Punk as we know it, is from that spot, and these places are all gone, you know, there's just it's a drag, not that they need to last forever, but for musicians, it's like, it's like the Holy grail, these kinds of clubs. And they're just closing them left and right.
1: You know? I'm glad the bitter end is still around. Yeah, exactly. That is still around. It sounds good in there and seems like they're good people, but yeah. <sighs> anyway. <laughs> Man, Once thank again. you
2: for having me. It was <laughs> like, this is a lot of fun.
1: <laughs> Once again, thank you, Matt Vanderen. I'm going to say it one more time thank you for joining me on the Broadway drumming one one podcast. <laughs> of
2: course. Of course. Anytime, man. Anytime.
0: Thank you for joining the Broadway drumming 101 podcast. If you like what you hear on the show, subscribe to the Broadway drumming one one newsletter at broadway drumming one one dot That's substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. The Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter is your one-stop shop for everything you'll need to know about playing drums for Broadway musicals. When you subscribe to the newsletter, you'll learn about what it takes to be a successful pit musician with content delivered directly to your email inbox two to three times a week. As a paying subscriber, you'll receive behind-the-scenes access to the life of a musician, who makes a living on Broadway. You'll also be able to read every post, not just those occasional free ones. You'll get access to all newsletter issues in the archives and have an ability to participate in subscriber-only comments and events. If you become a founding member for a gift of only $75, you'll receive discounted private drum lessons and a 25% discount on future promotional products. If you'd like to make a direct contribution to the production of the show, you can reach us at Venmo at Clayton-Craddock, Cash App at Syncopated, that's C-I-N-C-O-P-A-T-E-D, or PayPal at Clayton-Craddock. Any amount of support will be appreciated. Thank you for listening.